In this special episode of Every Quarter, we catch up with Emmy Award-winning actress Dana Delaney and producer Jonathan Meath, both from Phillips Academy's Class of 1974. Uh, This is a really fun episode. Uh, They're really great friends. They were back on campus for reunion weekend this summer, and this really just feels like sitting around table with old friends. I barely talk in this. They really just steer the ship. Uh, We cover everything from how they started at Andover and TV and film productions, uh, how they've sort of made a career for themselves in the entertainment industry, uh, a lot of laughs, a lot of inside jokes. Um, there's some conversation about the Mother Phillips photo, how Jonathan is actually the number one Santa Claus in the world right now, kind of trippy. And uh, we get into some serious stuff with Dana about how she chooses her roles and what's next for both of them in their careers. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Neil Evans, Associate Director of Digital Communications at Andover. And today I'm joined by Jonathan Meath, class of 1974. And Hello. Dana Delaney, 1974. Hi. Uh, so I'd love to start. We went to school together. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start there. Um, mm. I've read that, Jonathan, you directed Dana mm. when she was a student here in a video project. Cardinal class. Puff. So tell me oh about that. Oh, my God. I forgot that one. Mm. Tell, mm. Remind me. Oh, well, it was all about um, you had this game that you wanted to explain and I sort of put a loose uh, storyline to the idea that you were in a dorm room playing it with some of your friends. Did you create this story? No. Uh, you you were telling me about the idea of Cardinal Puff. Oh, my God. I have no what? recollection of well, this. Well, but there was some sort of thing you did. I am actually going to tap the table, even though I was told not to. There was something about the way you played Cardinal Puff that you hit the table. You don't remember any no, of this? God That's no. what it was about. And wow. it was yours. I, was I didn't know. Saying, it. He has such a good memory. You remember so much more. Than I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the other movie, the Steve Marks movie that we did. The, the All for Andover. Yeah, no, the gangster no. movie. But that was with David's. Another story. Yeah, that wasn't with me. What was that? So tell a little. It, it, it Come was, on, this uh, is a I podcast. Was, I was a gun mall, and there was a fight with Chris Doherty and David Zelon, and he was his, his backer, and and I was the I was I think Joe Malone's girlfriend. She's or making hand gestures <laughs> now that have to do but with it, we had this great cuffs. We had this great teacher, Stephen Marks, who taught um, mm-hmm. Shakespeare, which changed my life, and also film class. A film class. I yes. never took Shakespeare with him, but we had a wonderful film class. Great. Great film class, yes. Which, if I may say, inspired you. It did, because uh, he introduced me to In a Lonely Place, Nicholas Ray, which is my favorite movie of all time. In fact, my production company is named Lonely Place. There we go. the film. And also, he would take us into Boston to see movies, which I'm not sure he was allowed to do, but we did. Uh, and I remember him and me alone going to see Mean Streets and seeing Scorsese for the first time there and you thinking, go. oh, my God. This is life-changing. I've never seen anything like this movie. There you go. Yeah, that was when you could take the train and the bus into Boston. and Trombley line. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, where I was going, take us back to film class. Yes. Gloria Graham? Graham is my favorite actress of all time. I've modeled a lot of my roles after Gloria Graham. Yes. And she not, was no, amazing. We were really all knew her back then. In yeah, yeah, in film class, Steve was into her, and he mm-hmm. showed us more than one. He also showed us, which also 
was amazing. Another Nick Wright movie, They Live by Night. Mm-hmm. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was also a great movie. No. But he, he was into film noir. I'd never heard of film noir yeah. before. Yeah. yeah. Such a good teacher. Yeah. We saw Big Sleep. We saw Big Sleep, yeah. A bunch of noir stuff. Mm-hmm. But while we're here in beautiful Kemper Auditorium, which yes. now has a window in it, which I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was very upset about I that window. It's, <laughs> to me, it's sacrilege. If you have a, 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 a theater for showing movies, you don't suddenly put a big picture window. So you have to there. pull a curtain every time. Yeah, I, I would yeah. think. I haven't actually looked at it yet. After this podcast, I will go look at it. But for me, before our Steve Marks mm-hmm. class, I took a wonderful class called Perception and Expression that was taught by Diz Bensley and Harold Owen. Mm-hmm. It was a mashup of English class and media class. And one of the aha moments for me was they showed us a Canadian broadcast documentary on icebergs. Hmm. But this is this is probably 10 weeks into a class where we were analyzing a film every class and looking at other writings about film. And so we were all heavily into the cinematic uh, representation of the world and meaning and how it's represented on film. They took us that far and then showed us this documentary but instead of playing the soundtrack to the documentary, they played Frank Zappa's Hot Rats oh, as wow. the soundtrack and didn't tell us they were mashing these two things wow. together. It was an original mashup. It was an original mashup. And we, of course, being ninth grade English students, were like, oh, the meaning in this and the <laughs> wonderfulness. And we all wrote these papers. And then they told us and said, yeah, all of that connection and all of that meaning was brought by you to the mashup. Let's talk about that. And that was the next three weeks of discussion. It was very cool. I mean, that's something that they teach you here, to us at least, how to look at something. Right. It's so important. My point. How to look, and it's such an individual experience, but you also have to look at it critically objectively, you know. Right, and you have to learn what you actually bring to something. Yes, yes. Rather than what the authors are trying to tell you. And right. that intersection of minds yeah. is what media is about. And which is why today we went to the Addison Gallery That's and right. saw that fantastic show. And which, I cried. Yes, you did. It was beautiful. But wow. um, what was the name of the show, John? Um, Harlem. No, no, the other one. We in, loved the we Harlem, Harlem too, but, situ, but we in, went in, in, in and out of a place. place. Yeah. And yeah. it was so beautifully curated. So wonderfully curated. Just the and juxtaposition. S- and especially for us, because we've seen many of those paintings and, yes, and, and photographs, photographs yeah. and pieces of art before, but in keeping the way they mashed them together. Yeah. For example, a beautiful Gibson drawing that I was loving and pointing out to Dana how the line worked and how he gets such incredible expression out of it. And then she says to me, yeah, but look at the title. 
which says, looking at the Flatiron Building, and next to it is a picture of the Flatiron Flat building. building. By Bernice Abbott. It's beautifully curated. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. This is what's important about art and the Addison Gallery and the way it intersects with the kids and the students and the alumni. Yeah. It's, of this wonderful place. It's such an important source, the gallery. Oh, God, I'm going to cry again. I know, I'm thinking. <laughs> because art really, I mean, we're so lucky to have gone here because, you know, they don't have art in schools anymore in public school. What and What public this, school has its own gallery? Has its own gallery. It's just amazing to oh have access God. to this. It's yeah. wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and we discovered that photographer we didn't know, John Goodman. Now we're playing our violins. <laughs> We're playing our support Andover violins. Yeah, but we mean it. Yeah. So no, yeah, John so. Goodman. And taking pictures around the time we were here yes, at Andover. which was exactly... Yeah, which was what we were doing when we were going station. into town on the bus and yeah. visiting Trader Vic's. Yes, and it was... Among of, other places. Uh, what's the name of the square there? Um, you know, where the bus arrives in Boston. The Combat Zone? Yeah, the Combat Zone. <laughs> he was taking pictures of the Combat Zone in the 70s yeah. when we were there. Yeah, it's surprising I wasn't in one of those pictures. I know. So take me back to 1974, first mm -hmm. year of co-education here. Mm -hmm. What was yeah. sort of the vibe on campus? Obviously, you have fond memories and well, you've I developed have a, friendships. Well, I have but, a different yeah. experience because I was just here my senior sure. year. And so she, all the decisions were already made. Yeah, when Dana arrived, there was sort of a, a very different gestalt. I was... I have to say, I realized I was a bit of a unicorn, <laughs> and I didn't know it at the time because I mm -hmm. wanted to be here. I applied to Andover without my parents knowing it. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. they were getting divorced, and I wanted out of the house. Huh. So I had this very romantic notion about a separate piece because uh -huh. I had just read the book for the second time at the school I was going to. And um, so I was bored, and I applied not knowing it, they didn't have girls right. before. I just assumed right. they right. did. And I got in, so I could not wait to come here. And so I was the new girl. I didn't go to Abbott. And everybody was kind of like, well, how does she fit in? <laughs> Whereas my background was I was a four-year uh, person here and started in ninth grade. And actually, when I went shopping at, I'll get in a plug for the prep shop, which doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. It was at Harvard Square, run by this wonderful couple. It's kind of like the Andover shop is now, but um, they, they supplied jackets and ties and shirts and, uh, you know, gray flannel pants for these young boys who were going off to prep school. So I came equipped with, with a little jacket and couple of jackets, et cetera, et cetera, and then found out no dress code. Did uh, your parents just assume there was a dress code because well, it was they, prep school? They, my parents didn't really care <laughs> what I was doing. But I thought, yeah, we, we had a dress code until we didn't. Yeah. And so I arrived, and I was allowed to wear jeans, et cetera, et cetera. But also in part of changing the dress code was – oh, and we're going to have a different relationship with Abbott, and we're going to do this, that, and the other. And uh, not apropos of that line of thinking, but, you know, I was interested in Abbott, so within 45 minutes of arriving... there were girls. There were girls there. I was down and, and made friends with a couple of girls, and they asked me to help them up with their luggage and uh, made friends with, their, with Kitty Warner's mom, and she 
help. And then the dorm uh, mistress, the woman in charge of the dorm, said, oh, so you're Kitty's brother. And I said, no, I go to PA. And she said, get out <laughs> of this dorm. So I got kicked out so of the you, dorm. So you were, you were already incorrigible. Oh, within, day, within minutes, <laughs> within minutes of arriving. Um, but, yeah, the, so I was steeped in the world of Abbott for ninth grade and 10th grade, and I hung out in the butt room. Well, the first time I saw you, you were playing music. It was Ned and the Nummies. <laughs> I think that was that the first was, time I saw you. Yes. Neil, that was what is called a segue. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a good one. No, I'm just thinking Famous the first time Japan? I saw you. The Nummies? The, the first time you saw me that's, was with I the think Nummies? I, that's when I noticed you first, because you had the wild hair. Yeah. And you were the lead singer, right? I had hair. This right. is not a visual medium. And you and you had kind of a Joe Cocker yeah, vibe had about a you. Vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had a lot of body movements, spastic <laughs> body movements, like Joe Cocker. You were kind of imitating him a little bit. A little bit. You? A yeah. little bit. Because yeah, he was very yeah, hot. You then. know, if I was channeling anybody, I'd say it would be Paul Rogers. But that's just my vanity this, talking. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, we had a great rock and band. It was um, great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. Why were you uh, called Ned and the Nummies? Because we weren't called the Ducks and Ralph. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? We were called Ned and the Nummies because Harriet thought that Nummy was an, a nice idea. Nummy. And Harriet was my girlfriend, yes. Harriet Richards, back in those days. And, um, and Ned worked with that. I mean, the word Ned worked. Mm-hmm. So Ned and the Nummies was a good Didn't band Ned, name Ned for people. Play in the band too. Yes, Ned yeah. Ned was Whittemore, one of the guitarists, right? and Ned Whittemore was one mm-hmm. guitarist, and Ralph Stell was the other guitarist, and then we had two drummers, Andy Peterson and Rolf Birch. Oh and my God, Rolf was wow. Bass player was named W. G. Hamilton. We don't know where he is these days. We would love to. Um, because we're going to get the band back together for the 50th. You're hearing it here first. Exclusive. Rolf, I like that idea. (laughs) You know, Rolf conducts a Calgary symphony now. Well, hold on. Now I'm getting... I'm sorry. I did say Rolf Bursch, and that's wrong. It's Rolf Meserol. Okay. I had Rolf Bursch in my head because he texted me earlier. Rolf Meserol, who was in class of 75, and we don't know where he is either, somewhere Mm. in Burlington, Vermont. But... Our classmates a lot show up for the reunions, a lot. A lot of classmates. Yeah, yeah, we, we do. We have a good turnout. We do. Yeah. Well, we're the class of '74. Yeah, because we have the we best We are class. the Mother Phillips class. Yes. Would you like to explain Mother Phillips? Well, Mother Phillips was an idea that came together um, through a bunch of discussions, and uh, one of the key elements was Steve Miller, another member of the class, decided that he really did want to take a picture of something to commemorate our class and the specialness of being the first co-ed class. And we decided we should spell out the words Mother Phillips in naked bodies. Because it was 1974. Right. And Mm -hmm. because we were co-educational. Yes. We wanted to show And also there was was streaking that year. Remember there There was was streaking on campus. So nudity was a theme. <laughs> so nudity was a theme, and it turned out that the uh, ski jump was the perfect place. I don't know whether the ski jump even, well, of course it exists, but it's probably way overgrown. So are you in the infamous photo? 
I am not. Okay. That's a whole nother story. Dana, are you in the photo? No, but I claim to have been oh. in the photo on national television. You did? Yes, because it was after, I think, our 10th anniversary. I was going on Johnny Carson. This is when he was still host of The Tonight Show. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, wouldn't it be great if I, because I was trying to think of a story. Yeah, something. Because you got to have a story. got to have a you story. Know, you gotta, you, they prepare you. Unlike podcasts yeah, where so you, you go long go flight. on and on um <laughs> so i said i think to jack or jack gray i'm gonna take the the fold out because we had a photo yeah and it was our centerfold of our of our yearbook and i said i'm gonna take it on the tonight show and i'm gonna show johnny carson and i'm not gonna say i was in it but i could he could surmise that i was in it. i'm not gonna lie per se but anyway so i took it on the air on on the tonight show and he said, oh, you know, I hear you went to Innova first co-educational class. I said, yes. Yep. And I said, here is a picture we took there. And I showed it to him. <laughs> and, you know, he was just the best. He made everybody look I funny. Imagine. And, of course, he was like, mm, yeah, <laughs> and, which, and which one are you, <laughs> you know? And Ed McMahon's there looking at it. And I said, you'll have to guess. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's all That's all I said. <laughs> so I, I thought it was a good plug for Andover. <laughs> But no, I was not in it. I was not asked. I was the new girl. That was like early on in the year. I don't, you know, I was not part of it. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I was I was not part of it, even though I was in on all the planning, because I was playing in the band ah. that night, but a different band. But I was up in New Hampshire playing, so. Yeah. So, Jonathan, you go on to NYU. Yes. And into TV production. Yeah. Uh, Talk a little bit about how that sort of happened for you. Okay. Um, that's a biggie. Um, so, there was, as I, no, as I said earlier in the podcast, no, might not, might not have, but. Um, for me, Andover had two really impactful lessons, uh, and they each of them came out of uh, media classes, perception and expression, which was taught in my ninth grade year, and uh, film appreciation with Steve Marks, which was taught in my 12th grade year. And I really knew that what I wanted to do, if I wasn't going to become a famous rock and roller, would be to do something in film. So I tried to become a famous rock and roller and that didn't quite pan out. And uh, I still kept that up, but moved to New York City two years after Andover and got a, jo got a job. Didn't get a job, but I got uh, a place at NYU Film School thinking in my naivete, truly my naivete, that I was moving out of rock and roll and into something stable. <laughs> something that I could really make a living at and be, you know, join the working ranks of society. Yes. Mm -hmm. Little did I know it was truly out of the frying pan of rock and roll and into the fire of New York City mm. and the craziness of television production and film production and what you do in New York if you're trying to make it in media. 
and it was early days you know there were there were three networks and there were three ways you made television you were either in news or you were in sports or you were in entertainment of some sort and those three things happened out of New York very separate from LA um, and I tried as hard as I could to get in into production and so I started doing what was called truck work which meant doing entertainment not to be confused with sports truck work which is truly a whole different thing um, so I was I worked my way up from my first job was holding orange juice for Rex Smith. No, really? Rex Smith had... I knew him then. Had a, I know you did. Wow. He had a Saturday morning show called Hot Hero Sandwich. Oh, my God. And he had a band. And they were kind of like the monkeys. Yeah. You know, they'd been put together he, did he have his to hit, feature hit Rex. Yet? No. And he was very pretty. He was very pretty. Yeah. And so I was working on a music video that they were shooting for the show. And I held Perrier and orange juice. And I would offer it up when, you know, uh, this is what's called being a production assistant. Yeah. And you sort of do whatever it takes. So that was really my first real job. I'd been knocking on doors for a while. And I was going to NYU. And... Um, so that really didn't turn into anything, but then because I'd had some of that experience, I met a guy named Josh White, who was really one of my major mentors. Josh White, at age 19, had, had been the head of the Joshua Light Show at the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West wow. at age 19, wow. and had gone on to produce and direct mostly, but then uh, he did some production for a show that was called In Concert. And his specialty was shooting bands with with early video equipment. Huh. And uh, Josh was wonderful to me, and we did a lot of production, a lot of what is called truck work, and I was his uh, associate director, which means I set up the shots. And so you kind of mixed your music with the filmmaking. Yeah, tried to. Yeah. And then there was this crazy thing I remember I went and had an interview with a woman at something called Warner MX Satellite. And they were uh, trying to figure out how to use cable television to create something that was about music. And she said, you seem to be really into music. And we had a great interview. And then she said, I'm really not supposed to tell you this, but we're going to create something called MTV. <laughs> And I was like, wow, that that's, that's <laughs> going to be cool. Call me when that happens. And about six months later, I got a call. But I had also at that point made a, a relationship with CBS Records and was talking to them. And they were starting something called CBS Cable. So on the same day, I got an offer from MTV to be a producer and an offer from CBS to be a production manager. And I said to myself, again, in my naivete, yes. I said, CBS. It's been forever. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to work. It's the Tiffany Network. Even though I want to do, I want to be a rock and roller, I really want to do rock and roll, and MTV sounds you perfect. You would have been a great VJ. Yeah. You should have been a VJ. Well, 
Yeah, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah, that's so bad. I joined that's something bad. called CBS Cable, which hardly anybody remembers. We made uh, 24-hour programming very much in the vein of PBS. It was sort of CBS's answer to PBS. It was wonderful arts programming. It was great stuff. And they had a couple of real hits, but they were on cable way before cable was cool. Right. And... After two years, they closed up shop. I did some other work. But, you know, I, I worked out my, my craft as a producer and, and someone who could get a new show done. And lo and behold, we'll fast forward four years, five years later, uh, I got a call, call from a friend who had worked at MTV, and we knew each other very well, and she said, I'm creating this new show. Can you come and present uh, the concept for PBS. It was called, that was a show called Ghostwriter. I did that presentation for her, and the next day I got a call from some PBS executives, and they said, we have a show called Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, but we don't know what to do with it or if it's even any good. And I looked at their tapes and I said, yeah, it's great. And they said, do you know anybody that could produce this? And I said, yeah, <laughs> it's me. And that's what I did for the next six years. And that's my big In Boston, hit. right? No, oh. I commuted from Boston to, to uh, Manhattan. But wow. that's been my big hit. That was That big. was fun. I yeah. remember it. And it was a wonderful show. Geography. The thing that was great about Carmen Sandiego from a production point of view was we were a variety show layered on top of a quiz show right. layered on top of an educational show. Right. We did three things at once, basically three home runs all at once. Yeah. And it was a big hit. Yeah. And it was fun. You were part of a lot of kids growing up. Do it, Rockapella. <laughs> So, so Dana, it sounds like you sort of got that acting bug early at Andover mm. and through some influential instructors, film classes. How do you sort of take that inspiration and then make a career out of it? Well, I already knew I wanted to be an actor when I got to Andover. Um, and Frank Belizzi was teaching theater then, and he really, he he encouraged me. Frank Belizzi. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, I, I'm still to this day terrified to sing in public, and he convinced me that I should be the lead in the South Pacific. Do which... a little. Do a little. Watch I'm going to watch that man right out of my hair. And I got to watch. I had so much fun doing that play, and it gave me confidence, you know. And then went to Wesleyan, majored in theater. Uh, but... She had a little confidence before that. <laughs> Don't think it was like a bolt out of the sky. Well, I, I knew I could do dramatic stuff, but... The musical stuff was a challenge, but I loved it. I really loved it. And then uh, I went to Wesleyan, which honestly didn't have a great theater department, but it had a great film department. So I, again, I had a great teacher there, Janine Basinger, and um, then went to New York and just started to pound Do the it. pavement. Yep. I remember when you were working in that. What was that place? It was like a speakeasy, Chelsea something. Oh, uh, there was Cafe Central. There you go. Yeah, that was well. I actually I hung out there. I'd never worked there. You did? No, that was my hangout. It was too. Blo- <laughs> that was where every actor in New York hung out, and I met you know all my friends there, who mm. are still my friends yeah, yeah. today, actually. Um, but no, I yeah, you know, just commercials, soap opera, and then I lucked into a Broadway show at twenty 
four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Made my Broadway debut. Had no idea what I was doing. What was the show? It was called A Life. It was an Irish play. And huh. I don't know why Type I was casting. cast as an Irish girl. I completely, <laughs> well, here's a little background. Mm. I did not have an Irish accent. I'd never heard an Irish accent before. I didn't know what, you know, I'd watched, you know, The Quiet Man, you know, right. that kind of thing. John Ford movies. The Quiet So man. I had this audition you, for you, Broadway. I you need to do a remake of The I Quiet I would love man. to do that, yeah. <laughs> but this is back when we had records. Uh-huh. Remember those? Yeah. And I went to the Irish bookstore, and I bought a record of Siobhan McKenna reading Molly Bloom's speech from Ulysses. And I put it on my turntable in my little apartment, my little fifth floor walk up. There you go. And I just listened, put the needle down, listened, lifted it up, put it down, put it down, you know, over and over again, and just copied her accent from Molly Bloom's speech, which is mm-hmm. a famous, mm-hmm. fantastic speech. Can you give us a little? It's all, you know, yes, yes, yes. That's all she says at the end. <laughs> but I got, and I was so scared of losing the accent, you know, which is basically a lot of hard uh-huh. R's, you know, <laughs> in Ireland. So I, I stayed I'll, in the accent. I'll ask again. I'm not some. doing it because it's probably not any good anymore. I get in a cab going down there. I stay in the accent, talking to the cab driver in the accent. I'm yeah. downstairs waiting in the bowels of the Broadway theater with all these young actresses, you know, only speaking the Irish accent. And I'm wearing a little sailor dress because she's a very naive Irish girl. Stripes? No, no stripes. <laughs> Johnny gives me shit because I wear stripes all the time. It's my uniform. Um, and I got up and did my audition, and Peter Coe, the director, said, where did you learn your accent? And, of course, I lied because what that's what they teach you. I said, oh, my, my grandfather's from Ireland, <laughs> and he's been living with us for years. There we go, folks. <laughs> we got a little out of her. And he said, oh, which is total lie. My, my ancestors came over in, like, 1830. I'm loving this. I'm loving this. <laughs> and my grandfather was born in Brooklyn. Um, so, anyway, I got the job. It was shocking, and I was playing mm-hmm. this little, this little, you know, naive girl. And I remember we went to um, uh, Edmonton, Canada, to do the pre-Broadway tryout, uh-huh. and it was Roy Dotrice and Pat Hingle and ha- great actors. And um, and the director was standing next to me in the street corner. And he goes, "You're not who I thought you were." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "It's called acting." <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yeah. There you I'm go. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. Wonderful. So after several successful years of career, how do you choose your roles now? Oh, that's a good question. Being now 63, because we're the class of 74. Yeah. Um, no hiding that. Yeah. I now am very particular because I have learned that it actually makes me physically ill to do a role that I don't believe in. It really affects me strongly. So at this point, I'm really picky. I read the script, and I have to have a visceral reaction to it, and the writing has to be brilliant, and I have to feel like I can bring something to it, and the the role has to have many layers to it. It can't just be the mom or the wife or the boss. It's got to have, she has to have a lot of conflict in it. She's got to be more than one thing. She's got to have humor. She's got to have sexuality. And those are not easy to find, so I would rather, um, at this point, not work (laughs) than work. Hmm. Because it's really painful to do something mm. you don't believe in. Do you think you'd try something else like producing? Uh, I do like to produce because I like, like to have control. Mm. And I like that when you're a producer, people have to listen to you. You'd be good at it. Yeah. I've, I've dabbled. 
yeah, no, I, I, I do I do enjoy it. I've, I've done a couple things. What I'm not good at as a producer, which I'm learning because I'm right now trying to help produce this independent film mm. that I would also have a small role in. You have to be relentless, and a lot of people say no, yeah. and you can't take no. You have to say it doesn't mean anything that it's not good. It just means they don't get it, right. you know, and you have to go to the next person. And I'm right. more like, I'm so waspy. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it's not good. Forget it. <laughs> so yeah. I'm learning. You can't be that person. You have to really, even if you have moments of doubt about the material, you have to say, no, it's the best. Right. You know? Right. So there's a lot of you got to be pushy. And pushy. Then, there's, then beyond that is the level of then you got to make the deal. Yes. Well, it's a big part of producing. Yes. Making the deals. Yeah, and and that's a weird thing now in independent film because, you know, we only need one point eight million, and they would rather make a bigger film because mm-hmm. one point eight million. Mm-hmm. How nothing. M- nothing. Yeah. You know, why are we going to waste get our back time? From that? Yeah. Yeah. But you just keep pushing, and you shoot it in you know. Uh, two weeks. Yeah. Three weeks if you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think things you produce would be great yeah, well, because of what you just said, because you have standards and you have a vision. Well, I'm sure you learned this having been to Andover. Sometimes good taste can be used against you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have to just keep persevering because not everybody has good taste. I think that's true, mm-hmm. but I think that Andover taught me some taste. I think I got taste from other places, too. But it also taught me to persevere mm-hmm. and to use that gift for gab we happen to have mm-hmm. with our Irish heritage. <laughs> to be persuasive yeah. and to, to, you know, to make the vision real. Yeah. And, and again, getting back to media, that's part of what I really saw the spark of here at Andover, is that it's possible to take a vision and make it real and put together a piece of media that says more than the sum of its parts and that takes the written word off of the page and makes it something that can be inspiring. Yeah, and this scares you. I like to do things that scare me at this point. I like things that... I'm not sure I can pull it off kind mm. of thing. Like I just did this mm-hmm. play off Broadway and I had so much fun because it was scary, you know? And singing is still scary and I'm still planning on doing like a little cabaret act for one night only. Oh, there we go. Just the Algonquin? To, do they see Algonquin oh, still probably, do cabaret? I, no, they don't. That unfortunately closed down. But just for my own friends, you know? Nah. Not the public, just nah. my friends. I want a one night only where I just sing all my standards that I like, you know? Cool. Yeah, you still gotta you gotta scare yourself. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. Well, would you have piano accompaniment or yeah. a small trio? I don't know. I see you with a trio. Listen, one of my idols right now is Marilyn May. Do you know who she no. is? Mm. She is ninety-one years old. Mm-hmm. She still sings. Mm-hmm. She's like the last of the the saloon singers. Mm-hmm. She and Tony Bennett are the only ones left. She's ninety-one. Her voice is completely there. Neat. And I just saw her last week in New York, and she's become a friend. Cool. And I've taken master classes with her. <gasps> and um, so I'm learning interpretation from her because she's the Fabulous. best saloon singer I've That's ever heard. That's cool. Yeah. So I like seeing women that age. Uh-huh. It keeps her alive. And what does she use for accompaniment? She has a trio. 
She has uh, she has a bass and um, she has piano and she has uh, guitar. Guitar, yeah. Yeah, that's the classic. Yeah. I see that. You know why I see that? Because you can swing a little more with yeah. a trio than you can with just a piano. Yeah. Just a piano is gonna is good for doing a little torch singing. Yeah. And do but with a threesome you can step out. You know what song she's famous for that people are always asking her to huh. sing is Guess Who I saw, t- saw Today? Do you know that song? No. Guess Who I Saw Today, My Dear. And this whole thing about her catching her husband in a bar with somebody else is fantastic. Really wow. good, yeah. Wow. Okay. That's my, huh. that's my dream that scares me. You still huh. got to have dreams, right? I know people who play. <laughs> What's your dream still? You know, we got to get you together with Arthur Kell from... 75 he's got a little uh a little cabaret in brooklyn really and he puts together bands wow all right i think that's yeah but what's still, gonna, what, what still scares you what still scares me wow. besides, besides love i think love is the scariest thing <laughs> we're gonna go there and yeah. edit it by self <laughs> no, love so, is the scariest thing um to be vulnerable is the scariest thing yeah I mean, right now, I'm, I'm really working on health, and I'm really working on where to live and how to balance my life out. And the big, one of the big things in my life is sort of figuring out what the next 20 years looks like. Yeah. And for me, it yeah. looks like skiing, because skiing is the only sport that I really can See, set my heart into. See, because you didn't get into. on the team at Andover. Right. It's still that unfinished business. Right. Yes. And, you know... I, I still do a lot of rock and roll, and I sing, and I was in a ukulele group when I was, I, ju- I just got back from a year in Honolulu, and I had a great ukulele group ukulele? called the Park Rats, yeah, oh my God. and so fun. Um, if I, musically, I would love to have a jug band, wow. like the Jim Queskin jug band in the 60s, um, but what I really want to do is ski more than 30 days a year. And okay. just stay healthy doing that. Yeah. And if I can have some music around the edge. And, you know, I have a daughter who does some famous music. She's yes. she's a very good singer. Amelia is a beautiful singer. My daughter is named Amelia Meath and is part of Sylvan Esso as well as her other band, Mountain Man. If you don't know them, check them out. But uh, it, that's my little plug that, for what Amelia. What is that like for you, though, to see your daughter do something that you had wished to do? To, yeah. To live my dream? Yes. What is, what that, is like? that like? Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. And I know you're her biggest fan. I am her biggest fan. And you were kind of like told you had to back off a little bit. <laughs> I've been told many. Actually, I was publicly uh, chastised on on uh, NPR's, uh, what is that, Tiny Desk. She mentions me while she's in between songs and says, sort of rolls her eyes uh yeah so i backed off of that a little bit but i it's amazing to me because singing has always been a part of my family my dad sang to us and burl ives was his hero and oh wow how great oh yeah and to have her but you paved the way for her i mean you brought her up with that i did bring her up and i i also brought her up saying to her you know you are a woman and you're in in this time of our creation in America, I'm stumbling on my words, but 
the essence of what I said to her was, you got to stand on your own two feet. You have to figure out what you want to do in life and figure out how you're going to make your money. Don't depend on a man. Mm -hmm. Be your own person. Find your loves, yeah. but don't be subservient to anybody. No, Step advice. forward. Yeah, Step advice. forward. Do what you want. And she did that. And, um, you know, she found some people to play music with, but music wasn't necessarily what she was going to do. Hmm. But she took that opportunity and made it into a career. Yeah. And I'm incredibly proud of her. Jonathan, I'd be remiss to not mention your second Who? act of He's life. not here. Yes. It's a, it's a He's little, not here. It's not, it's, we're, we're almost like halfway there, right? Um, but you are a preeminent. Oh, listen to that. You sound just like Santa. Uh, you, that's a, is that your professional ho-ho? That's my ho-ho. That's a good one. Yeah. So we you, practice. It's full of we got to, You know, it's full of mirth. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan is a. Famous Santa Claus. Yes, and we actually, I was going to say, we practice ho-ho-hoing at Santa Claus conventions. So what is the key to a good ho? (laughs) From the diaphragm? Well, it has to do with the bush. Um, From the diaphragm, sincerity is really the most important part. And one thing you learn after you've learned to project and take the room with your voice uh, is it's scary to kids. So you have to choose oh, when you're going to hold home. Like Bad Santa. Like Bad Santa, but also you know, it, it's the room. You've got to gauge yourself for the room. And some kids, uh, you can ho-ho-ho. You can step away and ho-ho-ho like this, and that's fine as long as the kids are 50 feet away. But when you have a child on your lap, you titter a little more. You chuckle. You invite them in. I see the twinkle in your you eyes. T- You're saying I love this. it. There's nothing better. <laughs> there is nothing better than being present with a child who's believing in magic. It's not unlike rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. T- Do you believe t- in magic in a young girl's soul? One of my favorite songs. How the music Wasn't that Gary Lewis and intrigues the you. Or is that Jay and the... Jay, who sang that? Love and Spoonful. Love and Spoonful. John Sebastian. Sorry. Oh, and I had Man a huge, from I had a huge Greenwich crush on, on John Sebastian. Um, tell the Jenny Savino story. You ever met him? Which one? About her kids. Oh, Santa. my gosh. It's a yes. great story. Jenny Savino was telling us a story today. I was the Santa at Radio City Music Hall, and Jenny came... Uh, sort of serendipity, really, I think. I mean, she might have planned it, but she want, really wanted to see the show, and I was taking pictures in the lobby at uh, Radio City, and she had her kids, and there was no preamble. I didn't realize she was there until I saw her in line waiting for Santa, and I'm in the throne, or the chair, as we call it, in full suit. But I knew exactly who these kids were, and as they're coming up, I said, oh my gosh, and I got up and I went over, the Savino kids, I'm so glad you're, oh, Jenny, how, how, it's been too, too long, (laughs) and then I turned to the kids and delivered one of my, I have to say, pat lines when I know, I said, you should have seen her when she was a kid, she was so bad. (laughs) 
So they all laughed. And the kids that, all looked at me with a twinkle, and they were like, a, and I said, you want to take a picture? And we sat down, and we took a picture, and I had them hook, line, and sinker. They, they believe in Santa for like a lot more longer than that's they probably what, expected that's to. That's what Jenny was telling and us she, today. And she said that she, um, said, she had told them, well, yes, there's a lot of Santas in the world, but there's only... Once in a while, the real one. The real one comes and steps in. Steps in. You never know Where, when, when you're going to encounter the up. real Santa. And sometimes when there are many Santas in the room, which, of course, is really disorienting for kids. That's what we, as Santas, tell them because it's true. There is one Sometimes real Santa. Santa does show up. Well, you're the, aren't you the like classic Coke Santa or something? I have had the honor of working for Coca-Cola yes. and being the representation of their uh, Santa that only existed prior to me in illustrations. Yeah, that's done big. Done in the 30s and 40s by Haddon Sundblom. That's huge. And I happen to have the right cheeks for the part. And you have the right eyes, too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Facial features also. Joe Cocker never got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. Um, yeah, it's it's that's been a huge honor and really fun to reproduce those images. We worked hard on getting the right look and making the beard look right. And um, I consumed a lot of Coca Cola, and uh, a really fun thing to do. 120 countries. That's amazing. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, we'll leave on this note. I sort of as looking back, what are you sort of some advice you have for students at Andover now, young creatives looking to pursue their dreams, get into the business, hmm. do something special out there? Well, it is about pursuing your dreams. And it is about figuring out what works for you and what doesn't. As Dana yes. was saying earlier, you know, you, you, you have to be picky. You, but you also have to go with your gut. You have to uh, allow your bliss to lead. I mean, that sounds kind of pat. What would you say? Well, everyone's different. I I know that I am so sensitive that if I do something that doesn't sit well with me, mm. I'm not going to get a good performance. Mm. Some people can do that, you know, and they just say, take every job that's offered to you. Everybody's built differently. But, I, you know, and I'm not saying this just because we're sitting at Andover. The whole non-sibby thing really informs my work mm -hmm. because I feel like, especially when I did China Beach, which was really disturbingly early on in my career, and it, and it spoiled me because I thought it was always going to be like that. I thought yeah. it was always going to be a role with great, you know, impact and meaning mm -hmm. and depth, especially for a woman. I didn't know how unusual that was. And so ever since then, I've been spoiled, and every role that I choose, I feel like it has to give back somehow mm -hmm. even if it's a, a comedy it has to give back to the audience or say something about the world that is uh, has resonance and reflective of the times that not we're just, in not just entertainment but yeah substance substance and it can still be a comedy but it also has to you know make people think or you know look at something differently and it's just yeah. it's important just because otherwise why do it Right. You know, it can't be about self-gratification. It can't be about ego. It can't be about money or being famous. I really believe that if you do the things that have meaning for you, the rest will come. That's a great note to go out on. Dana, Jonathan, thank, thank you for joining you. us. Thank you, Dan. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover. The show is made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Fund, 
continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. You can listen to the show on iTunes. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And also check us out at podcast.andover.edu, hashtag every quarter podcast. I'm Neil Evans. Thank you.